You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. The letter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to make your way there. Last week, we started our Advent series. This year's Advent series is called Christmas Year-Round, Cultivating Christ-like Virtues. If I could summarize the, the theme of this year's series in the most succinct way possible, th- this is how I would explain it. I think the way in which Christ came into the world and the reason He came into the world must shape the way we live year-round. Let me say that again. Even though we take the month of December to focus on the incarnation, the coming of Christ, the, the way in which Christ came into the world, and the reason He came into the world, must shape the way we live year-round, not just in the month of December. See, we, we must be convinced as a church that every follower of Jesus is called to cultivate certain Christ-like virtues. And one of the ways we do this, it's not the only way, but one of the ways we cultivate these Christ-like virtues is by reflecting on why Christ came into the world and what He accomplished as God in the flesh. And last week, we reflected on the virtue of gratitude. It felt like a good transition between Thanksgiving and the beginning of this Advent series. And last week, as we reflected on gratitude, we did so in a distinctively evangelical way, meaning we talked about gratitude that was shaped by the gospel. See, we we know of many people who do not belong to Christ, maybe friends or neighbors or co-workers or family members that are grateful people, though they don't belong to Christ. The kind of gratitude we were talking about last week is not a gratitude that anyone can express to God apart from Christ. And today we're going to reflect on another virtue, and that is Christ-like humility. And there is not a better place in all of Scripture to reflect on and to study and to be motivated to be humble then Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. So if you have a Bible with you, would you follow along now as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word? Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, let's read to verse 11. Do nothing from selfish, ambi- uh, uh, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray together. O great God, our Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, we ask now, only because of the merit of Christ, that you would help us to hear your word and not just to listen, but to heed what is said and to take it to heart. And Lord, help us to to delight in what we're about to hear, not just dutifully receive it. And Lord, would you magnify Christ in our midst? We thank you for the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit magnifies Christ. We pray now, Spirit of God, would you magnify the Savior in our midst right now? And Lord, would you change us in light of what we are about to hear. May we not be the same people when when this message is over. Affect us. Impact us. Transform us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Winston Churchill, the formidable and quotable former British prime minister, was once asked what he thought about one of his particular political opponents and in his way that only Winston Churchill could do, he responded in the following way about his opponent. He is a humble man. But then, he has much to be humble about. (laughs) Don't you love that? That's just typical Churchill right there, that underhanded compliment. I love that. Oh, my my opponent, he's a humble man, but he has much to be humble about. Friends, what Churchill said about his opponent could be said of all of us. We, We should all be humble because we have much to be humble about, do we not? The answer is yes. <laughs> we, we have much to be humble about. But here's the thing. This morning, though we have much to be humble about, we're not just talking about a general humility that should be for every person to display because we realize that we have much to be humble about. This morning, we are talking about a unique kind of humility, a special kind of humility. The kind of humility that we're reflecting on today is is owing to the fact that we have Christ as our example. See, Christ is our example of what humility on display looks like. And the kind of humility we're called to must reflect the Savior who humbled himself, and get this, he had no reason to be humble. So this is a different kind of humility. This isn't just a a general humility in which every person on the planet should have. Because every person on the planet has many reasons to be humble. This is a different kind of humility. This is a humility that we see in the Savior, and yet he had no reason to be humble. 
See, the kind of humility Philippians 2 calls us to cultivate is a gospel-motivated humility. I think Gavin Ortland, in his excellent new book called Humility, The Joy of Self-Forgetfulness, he says this so well. He says the gospel is the source of all true humility. Humility is not a virtue we cultivate in the abstract. It's the mark of integrity to the gospel. And all of our efforts at humility must be fueled by the gospel, lest they result in merely fleshly counterfeits or imitations. The kind of of humility we're talking about this morning is a humility that is fueled and motivated by the gospel. It's the mark of integrity of the gospel. Now, if the source of true humility flows from the gospel, then that means what we must do if we are going to cultivate this kind of humility is we must look to Christ to understand humility, and we must look to Christ to be motivated to be humble. That's what Philippians 2 is calling us to do. It's actually telling us to look to Christ to understand humility and to look to Christ to be motivated to be humble. And that's why the first thing we must do is marvel at the greatness of Christ on display in the gospel. That's our first takeaway for this morning. We must marvel at the greatness of Christ's humility. That's what Philippians before, Philippians 2 calls us to do something for ourselves in in responding humbly. We must first marvel at the greatness of Christ's humility. Now, why is that? Well, I think John Piper gives us wise counsel on why this must be our starting place. He, He writes this, Christian humility flourishes in the human soul when we are standing in the front of in front of the window that looks onto the Himalayas of Christ's grandeur. And then he goes on to say this, and Christian humility vanishes when we close the window and stand in front of a mirror trying to see the authenticity of our humility. So we got to start here. We want to be humble. We throw open the window and we look at the greatness of Christ. Like he, he says it's like the, the, the glory of Christ is like looking out and seeing the Himalayas. That's how we get humility. We don't stand in the mirror and say, well, am I, am I humble enough? Am I too proud? If we do that, it will kill humility and it will promote pride in seeking to see how humble we are. We will actually be more proud. We don't kill humility and cult or kill pride and cultivate humility by looking in the mirror but we look out the window at the glory of Christ see the the apostle paul understood this to be true and that's why he says this to this congregation in philippi he exhorts them to be humble and he does so by telling them fix your gaze on Christ no, notice what he He says again in verses 3 through 5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think about what what just occurred in verse 5. Think about what Paul's doing here. He calls this congregation to cultivate a humble mindset by adopting the mindset of Christ. Do you see the connection? He tells them, you must be humble. Do not seek your own interest above the interest of others. And he didn't end by saying, now go and, and find ways to do that. You are to be humble, he says, by having the mindset of Christ. That is how you cultivate humility. And then notice what happens next. Then Paul erupts into a confession of praise, declaring who Jesus is and what he accomplishes in verses 6 through 11. So he tells them, be humble. Verse 5 is the bridge between verses 3 and 4, telling them, here's how you're going to be humble. Behold Christ. And then for 6 through 11, he just breaks out into what's called a Christ hymn. It's this confession of praise to Christ and who he is. And this confession is stunning and spectacular. It portrays all of the, the diverse and perfect qualities of Christ. He is the lamb who is also the lion. If we're to use the, the language of Revelation 5. He, he has diverse and excellent qualities. See, it appears that in order to apply the commands of verses 3 through 4, we must first behold the greatness of Christ by reflecting on His lowliness. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. We see Christ's greatness in His lowliness. That's the point of Philippians 2, 6-11. We see the greatness of Christ in His lowliness. Look at verse 6. Who, though Jesus was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. First thing that, that we're told is that Christ was God. It says when He's in the form of God, you can translate, He was in the nature of God. It's not saying He was like God. He is God. Don't get caught up in that language. He is God. So it begins with this high statement of who He is. He is God. And then we're told what He did not do. Before we're told what He did do, look what He did not do. Though He's God, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had every right to have the privileges and the responsibilities and, and the rights of God, and He set them aside. Though He's God, he does not say, I have all the rights of God. What does he do then? Verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Oh, think about what, what, what's being said about Christ here. Though he is God, he does not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he does what? He, here's the thing he does now. We're told what he didn't do, he emptied himself. Now that doesn't mean he gave up his divinity. That's not what it's saying at all. He doesn't give up his divinity. Then how does he empty himself? He takes on the form of a slave. 
So the highest of high takes on the, the position of the lowest of the low. And the word here in the Greek is not servant, it's slave. So the one who had every reason to have every right and privilege sets them aside and responds and reacts as a slave. And how does he empty himself? And how does he become slave-like? By becoming like us. By taking on flesh. See, Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a man. It's subtraction through addition. Christ empties himself by not giving something up but by taking something on. He was God, now He becomes man. The one who had all the rights and privileges of God sets them aside, takes on the form of a slave by taking on flesh. This is the ultimate display of condescension. This is the ultimate display of becoming lowly. See, Jesus assumed the position of a slave instead of acting like God. In other words, He put the interests of others before Himself. Do you see what's happening here? And just when we think that Christ could not get any lower or do anything more glorious we then read verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, as, as a man, Jesus expressed the ultimate display of lowliness and condescension. And he was willing to be obedient to the plan of the Father, which led him to the cross. It wasn't just a humble act that Jesus became a man. It's that he went so far as to die, and not just to die, but to die on the most shameful thing in that culture that the worst of the worst would die on. And he did not do it because he was guilty. He did it because of our need. That is why he went to the cross. I love what Jason Meyer says. This captures it so well when he writes, only the greatest humility could willingly accept the lowest place possible. Let me get this sentence. He was not too proud to wear our skin or bear our sin. <laughs> Take that in for a moment. Jesus was not too proud to wear our skin and to bear our sin. Praise God. Do you see the greatness of of Christ. Brothers and sisters, here is the greatness of Christ on display. And here's what we discover then in verses 9 through 11 that his greatest act of humiliation is the very reason for his extraordinary exaltation. Let me read verses 9 through 11. See, see the connection. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you, do you see the, the greatness of Christ on display? The greatness of Christ in His humility? Notice, notice what, what we just read here in verses 9-11. through 11. It doesn't say Jesus started out with humiliation and ended in exaltation. No, Jesus' humiliation was the reason for His exaltation. What makes Him so great is not that He spoke the world into existence, that He told the storm, be still, and it obeyed Him. What makes Him so great was not that He could say to the dead boy or the dead girl, get up, and they got up. What makes Him so great is that He was obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. And that's why he has the name that is above every name. So why would why would Christ be humble if he had no reason to be humble? We know why we should be humble. But why should Christ be humble? See, Christ didn't humble himself due to his inferiority, his own weakness, his own sin, because he had none. So then why did he humble himself? Friends, Jesus assumed the lowest place imaginable because of our sin, our weakness, and our great need. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 makes this declaration. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That is the reason Christ came. And church, we, we must marvel at the humility of Christ on display through the message of the gospel. And we must allow His example to fuel all our effort to be humble before God and humble before others. So how do we do this? How, how do we look at Christ and allow His example and, and the example of the gospel to fuel our humility? Well, I want to turn once again to the helpful words of Gavin Ortland when he writes, true humility, gospel-fueled humility, results from more than a mere conviction or need it results from personally receiving the provision of Christ as the remedy for that need. It's not just believing, yeah, I have a need and Christ met it. It's personally encountering Jesus who's met that need. He, he, I, I think that this may help. He gives a wonderful illustration of the kind of humility we are to receive from Christ. He says, suppose you're approaching an extremely powerful king. You walk into the royal court. Your footsteps echo on the marble. The ceiling is far above. Gold glitters around the room. You look up to his high throne. You wait for him to speak. And then he asks this question, how would you feel in that moment? Humble. But now suppose the king gets off his throne. 
and rushes to you. He's been greatly worried about you. He has in fact put his life in great danger in order to help you. He embraces you and cries with relief that you're safe. Then he leads you to a huge table and and personally serves you breakfast. He says, how do you feel now? Does not the king's kindness humble you as well, but in a different and deeper way? And he says, this is the the humility the gospel should produce in us. The Most High God has stooped down to show us a love we could have never deserved and a love that will endure for all eternity. See, there's the difference between going before a great king and feeling the weight of his greatness as you walk on the marble floor and you see the high ceilings and you stand before Him and you realize how great He is. But there's a different kind of greatness when the King gets up off the throne and He runs to you. He says, I'm so glad you're here. And you look around you say, me? I'm here? That's a different kind of humbling. So before we move on, let me ask you this question. Have you personally received Christ's provision for you in this way? You're not just humbled that there is a God and that He's great and that He's powerful and that He made you and He made all things. It's not just that Christ is, is, is worthy of your allegiance and that He's humbled you as you think about His power and His glory. See, have you ever been humbled by His love and His mercy? That's a different kind of humbling. It's not just a humbling because of how powerful He is. It's it's a humbling that comes because He is so full of mercy and grace. See, we can't move on and talk about how to cultivate humility until we start here. If you're here this morning, if you've never experienced that kind of humbling before Jesus Christ. God brought you here for a reason this morning. It was to hear not only is God great in His power, in His might, He is seen in His infinite greatness in the fact that He humbled Himself for you and I by taking our sin on Himself so that we could be forgiven. That is humbling. But how do we respond then? To this humbling of Christ. Well, we're we're called to do something. We're called to cultivate Christ-like humility. See, once we marvel at the greatness of Christ's humility, we, we must seek to live our life motivated by the gospel, which should make us humble. That's that's point two, cultivate Christ-like humility. I'm not going to read verses three and four again, but just to remind us the context. The first thing the Apostle Paul writes this congregation to do is for them to be humble. So there, there is a, there's a response. There is an action. We, we are called to put the interest of others above ourselves. But we're not just to do it in some way where we write a list and say, okay, well, here's, here's the needs of others. No, we're, we're to look at the greatness of Christ. We're to see the gospel and it's to motivate us. But then we're, we're called to respond. We're called to cultivate humility. Now, I want to mention just two ways 
from Philippians chapter 2, we're called to cultivate this kind of humility. Much could be said on the topic of humility. We've preached many sermons on humility. Later on, as when we come back to the Gospel of Luke in January and, and throughout the rest of the, the year, we're going to hear many more things, even from Luke's Gospel, on humility and pride. But I think Philippians 2 offers two very specific things that we are to give our attention to if we're going to cultivate humility. Here's the first one. We're to actually value humility. We're to value it. Why do I say that? Go back to verse 5. Verse 5 often just gets read over too quickly. It's actually the hinge of this entire passage. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here's how you could translate verse 5. Have this attitude about humility that reflects the posture of Jesus. See, when he says mind, he doesn't just mean like mentally think in this way. The same posture of heart that Jesus has, you're to reflect. You're to value things as Jesus valued them. You see, I think if anything is a virtue, it must be valued. That's what makes something a virtue. It's not just a good character quality. But what makes something virtuous? Virtuous to you and virtuous to those who experience this, this virtue in you. It's, it's because it's worthwhile. It's beneficial. It's beautiful. It produces joy. Is that how we view humility? Is humility something that we value? Do we see it as worthwhile and beneficial and as a source of joy? I think Gavin Wortland once again puts it so well when he says, I often think of humility as a somewhat dreary virtue. Or we often think of humility as a somewhat dreary virtue. We know we need it, but we don't expect it to be much fun. Then he says, I remember a talk on humility at a youth group. The speaker opened with dutiful reluctance. He said, I know we really don't really, I know we don't really enjoy this topic, but we need to talk about it anyway. This is how many of us think. Humility is important, but strictly as a duty. It's like paying our taxes or going to the dentist. And then he says, I think we get humility backward. We think humility is an impossible burden. But in reality, it's as light as a feather. Is that how we view humility? See, to have the mindset of Christ, it is not just say, well, Christ did this, I better do it. Christ valued all that His humility would accomplish. We must value Humility. We, we often do get it backwards. We, we think of humility as this burden instead of the very thing that frees us from the burden of self-importance. And that's the point Paul's making here in Philippians chapter 2. He, he doesn't just tell them, look what Christ has done, now you do the same. He was humble, you be humble. That's not the point that's being made here. See, something far greater is being talked about. It engages the heart 
and the affections. We, we, we're told here in this passage, we must have the same kind of attitude that Christ had. We must value what He valued. And when we have the mind of Christ, we're able to live as we were originally created. Listen carefully to this and, and take this in. Humility makes us more human and more alive than ever. Humility makes us more human and more alive than ever. I think David Mathis in his book Humbled captures it well. He writes, the humility of Christ shows us that true humility is not the denigrating of humanity, but God's image shining in its fullness. To humble oneself is not to be less human. Rather, it is pride that is cancer. Pride that corrodes our true dignity. To humble ourselves is to come ever closer, step by step, one degree at a time, to the bliss and the full flourishing for which we were made. Who doesn't want to get one step closer to experiencing bliss and the full flourishing for which we were made? Well, guess what? That's only on the path of humility. Of Christ-exalting humility. Now, the only way we can cultivate humility is we've we got to prize it, but there's a second thing we must do. Not only must we value humility, we must value others over ourselves. That's the second practical point of application as we close. We've got to first of all value humility, see what a benefit it is to us, not just to others, but to us. But we also must value others over ourselves. Why do I say that? Because if you study the, the, the passage we're looking at this morning in its larger context of Philippians, the, the point being made, this, this whole idea of gospel humility, it's being emphasized within the context of community and unity. Listen back to chapter 1, verses 27. Verse 27. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy there doesn't mean that you, you add up or that you you're worth the, the, the cost of Christ or the price of Christ. Worth there means it, it, it resembles the gospel. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, leading up to our passage. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he goes on to tell them, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do you get the point Paul is making here? Do you see what he is saying? One of the things that would be very noticeable if you were just to sit down and 
take a moment to read this entire letter, which wouldn't take you very long, is, is that Paul labored for the sake of this church. And he, he labored for them, and not, not for his own reputation or for his own comfort. So when Paul's saying, let's, let's be humble like Christ all throughout this letter, we see examples where Paul did that and others did that. They put others over themselves and that was their reason for joy. It brought them great joy. Now, I think this point is worth emphasizing right now because it is so relevant here in the West in which we live. There is so much expressive individualism and the ideas of personal autonomy. And those two ideas, expressive, indivi expressive individualism and personal autonomy, you be you, you do you, those are seen as the sure signs of a healthy person and human flourishing. What does it mean to be a person today? You, you do you. You be you. Personal autonomy. I'm, I'm my own person. No one in society. No one God. No moral standards. No ethical standards. No one can tell me who I need to be. I'm just going to be me. And that's the, that's the sign of a healthy person and a human flourishing in our culture. And here's the problem with it. It's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. And friends, the gospel is meant to free us from this lie, this horrible lie about individualism. Because here's the problem with individualism. It makes your life so small. Your life is about the kingdom of one. You. And it's a lie because it doesn't because all that it promises it does not it does not give any of the benefits. It does not make you happy or joyful or or feeling freer. See, the gospel actually frees us from this trap. Because of the gospel, we can value others more than ourselves. And we see that all throughout Paul's letter. If we had time, we could walk through Philippians and see the number of examples he gives us in the early parts of the letter when he begins to pray for this church and he speaks of his affection for him and that there is joy and how much he loves them and he longs for them to, to love in greater ways. Or think about how he describes them in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. There's an affection he has for these people. He's not just dutifully carrying out his apostolic duties. Well, I'm an apostle. You know, Jesus did kind of save me on the road to Maus and commissioned me to do these things. There is joy and his crown. So when he says, don't, don't seek your own ambition. Seek the interest in the, and, and, and the benefit of others. The Apostle Paul modeled this. And he does so by, by showing us how affection for others must, must motivate us to serve them. Now next week, if the Lord wills, we're going to return to Philippians 2 to reflect on the virtue of being servant-hearted. 
Because it's the outflow of, of this kind of gospel humility. So, as we close, is there anything we can take away from Paul's example and from Philippians that will help us this very week, but especially as we come into a new year, into 2024, that we can actually live out verses 3 and 4. We're called to cultivate this kind of humility that says that we don't put the interests of, of others lower on the list, but higher on the list. Well, I think there's a simple phrase that I first heard my my fellow Sovereign Grace pastor and friend Philip Estrada use, and I was always struck by it. I thought it was helpful, and then it began to be more than just helpful, but compelling. And it originally came from a man named Ed Welch, a counselor. It's a simple phrase, but it, it, it packs a lot if you think about it. The phrase is this. I would hear Phil say, I want to love more and need less. What difference would that make in 2024 if we adopted that idea? When I walk in the room, I want to love more and need less. I'm not going to walk in the room and think, does everybody notice me? Has anybody said anything about all my needs? I'm going to walk in and say, who, who here can I lavish with affection? Who here can I serve? Who here would think they are my joy and my crown? That I've given them that kind of attention. Because here's the reality. I stated this last week. I'll state it again this week and probably every week that we're looking at these virtues. And I think it's true in light of this Sunday's message here in Philippians, if you know much about Philippians, it is often called the epistle of joy. Because here's what happens when we carry out verses 3 and 4 and we love more and need less. You know what it does? It increases our joy. It increases our joy. When we just love people more, we put their interest above our own. And we find ways to serve them and help them instead of always being focused on our needs and our wants and our wishes. We think, this is once again the lie, the lie of the flesh is, if everybody meets your needs, you'll be more happy. Guess what? That's a lie. The gospel says, looking at Christ, the more you meet the needs of others, the happier you are. So do you lack joy? Do you want to grow in joy? Then maybe one of the secrets to joy in your life and my life is that we love more and need less. But the only way we can cultivate any of these is by looking to Christ and His example and by asking God by the power of the Spirit to help us to do these things. So let's pray and ask God for His Father, thank you for displaying the greatness of Christ's humility to us this morning. May it compel us. May it move us. 
may it humble us first before you and then humble us before others. And may, Lord, we be more humble people in the coming year who love more and need less, who serve others more. Help us to be these kind of men and women. Help us to be this kind of church. And I pray as we do so, not only is the gospel on display, but that our joy would increase. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful truth you have shown us this morning that you love us enough to tell us far better news than the world is telling us. You are showing us how to truly live and to find life and meaning and purpose and joy. How kind of you, Lord. Help us now by the power of the Spirit to leave here and to be transformed by what we've heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.